0: Um, it's really good to be here. For those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Charlie. I'm one of the lay elders um, at Hillview Kintore Church family, and I'm more connected to Kintore. so my family are worshipping at Kintore this morning. But it's great to be here on a day when there's a baptism, and it's great to be on a day when we get free chocolate. So, Lindsay Clark, you're in charge of babysitting my Yorkie bar. <laughs> no, babysitting it. Um, so, um, uh, I've had during w- w- j- 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 my kind of uh, teen, late, early, late teens, and uh, during um, the holidays at universities, I had quite a number of jobs. And my wife's family always find it quite funny how many little jobs I had over the years. Um, I must apologize, but I was one of those people who uh, cold calls you and tries to sell you a kitchen at one stage, but when you're that age, you're desperate for any job, so you'll take whatever. I think I probably made a thousand phone calls, or one person said, oh yes, I'll have a kitchen designed. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't the best of jobs. But one job I remember in particular, I worked for a company called High Tech Calibration. And this company used to calibrate electronic test equipment. Um, and I worked for them on and off over a number of years in a, a number of different roles. But the first role I worked for them, my job was to drive a van around the southeast of England and deliver this test equipment back to the companies who had given the test equipment to them to calibrate and pick up other test equipment. Um, and driving around the southeast of England, this was, this was uh, 90s, in the 90s. Um, and we didn't have SATNAV. And we didn't have mobile, well, we did have mobile phones, but they were phones, full stop. Um, I didn't have a map reader sitting next to me, so how did I find my way round to these places I'd never been to? Well, I printed off... Uh, Google Maps and I would look at Google Google Maps and have it sitting next to me and I'd try and memorize the places that I had to go through to get to my ultimate destination. But I actually had to use road signs, which is something that we don't use anymore. We don't use road signs. And my car even tells me what the speed limit is and I can even press a button so that I can't drive over the speed limit. So I don't even need to look at the speed limit signs anymore. I just, you know, um, so we've kind of forgotten what road signs are and what they're for and what they do. So I mean, can you put the first slide on? So I, I, I tried to find the most random place I could find on the internet. And everybody knows that I like sheep. Everybody knows me knows that I like sheep. I wouldn't say I like magma. Um, but anyway, Sheepy Magma, totally totally random name. And what, what is this road sign telling me? Well, I've never been to Sheepy Magma. I'm probably never going to go there. I haven't got a clue what it's like. But I know that once I walk past that road sign, I'm in Sheepy Magma. And that sign is evidence that that is Sheepy Magma. And it points and it directs me towards Sheepy Magma. Um, we should probably take that slide down, because it's going to distract everybody from what I'm trying to say, because they'll keep looking at the sheepy magma. So um, John's gospel um, has six or seven, and I'll explain why it's all seven later on, miracles within his gospel, and the difference between John's gospel and the other gospels is that John calls them signs. And the others call them miracles. Of course, they are miracles, but John explicitly says that these are signs. And in Luke, there are 21 miracles. In Matthew, there are 21 miracles. And in Mark, there are 20 miracles. So. Um, It's really interesting here that John only focuses on the six or seven miracles, and it doesn't mean that John thinks Jesus is any less miraculous. Um, In fact, John focuses in more detail on a smaller number for one purpose, and he uniquely calls them signs for a reason. Um, Why is this? So, I'm just going to read John 29, 30, um, uh, obviously later on in the Bible. And John says this, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, in his name. So this is why he wrote these signs. So what John's saying here is that these signs point towards Jesus. They are evidence. They are proof that Jesus is the son of God. And later in the Gospel of John, we learn that believing in him and repenting of our sin, we can have life. In other words, Jesus makes it possible for us to be separated from our sin. And we have all fallen short of God's standards even the best, which allows us to be children of God, free from being separated from him by our sin and the promises and inheritance he's put aside for us, giving us eternal life and one day a place in his heavenly kingdom where all suffering and pain are gone. So John considered it really important to direct us to this truth and provide evidence to his readers that Jesus is God, and not just a normal guy who did and taught good. That he came to be among us on a mission to save us all from our sins. So earlier I said that John's gospel has six or seven signs. So some scholars debate whether Jesus walking on water is strictly a sign. And the reason for that is that John introduces the other six signs, but he doesn't introduce Jesus walking on water as a sign. But in my opinion, who else can walk on water other than God? So really, you know, I think we should consider this the seventh sign. I don't think um, it should just be, be the sixth signs, but that's just a, a, bit of, a bit of theology. So just to set the scene um, on this wedding, if you could put the second slide up, I mean. Um, there, we've got a map here. So I just wanted to just let us understand geographically where Cana is. Um, compared to Nazareth. So obviously Nazareth is where Jesus is from. Um, Cana is right next door to Nazareth geographically. Nazareth, um, we know from um, reading further in the gospel, is a, is a small town with a small number of families. We don't know much about Cana, apart from that he went to the, to the wedding here. Um, and I guess maybe Cana could be a bigger town. It could be where the markets were, where they bought their provisions. But because they're so close geographically, it's likely families in Nazareth and, and Cana knew each other. Um, so that's probably why Jesus was invited to this wedding. So Jesus was invited. Um, his mother was invited. And uh, the... Disciples were invited, and um, reading through the gospel, we know at this stage that Jesus has only called five followers out of 12 at this stage. So we've been five disciples at the wedding. And weddings in ancient Jewish culture were huge events. Um, they didn't have any form of entertainment um, like we have today, so looking, they would have massively looked forward to these things. And these, these events, a the wedding would have lasted a whole week. Um, So it's a major, major thing compared to to, to what we celebrate today. And um, uh, John introduces this story with on the third day. Now that's interesting. There's a lot of debate as to what exactly he means by the third day. Um, It could mean the third day after the previous thing that happened. It could mean the third day of the wedding. It could mean the third day of the week, which in the Jewish calendar is a Tuesday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And Tuesday, Uh, was often a day when Jewish weddings would would start because um, Tuesday is a significant day in the week for for Jews and the reason for that is because in the creation story, God says it is good twice, so Tuesday uh, was a big day and it's likely the wedding would have started on a Tuesday, but I think the point here is um, the mention of the third day. Third day is a phrase which is used throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's ultimately used um, to represent the day that Jesus rose. So that kind of phrase, third day, is a phrase that we're all familiar of and we read throughout the Bible and it keeps reminding us of things. And that's one of the things I love about the Bible is there's so many little hints that direct us towards other passages. Um, And I like to think of them as hyperlinks. Um, I don't know if anybody ever gets stuck in one of these Wikipedia surfing bubbles that sometimes I find myself in. You look up something, you want to know about something, and then there's all these links in Wikipedia, and you want to know about that link, and that link, and that link, and you jump, and you, you can spend hours jumping, jumping around. And um, The Bible is like that. I think if the Bible was written today, it would be a website with hyperlinks all over the place, and there's hyperlinks jumping from the New Testament to the Old Testament, the Old Testament to the New Testament, the New Testament to the New Testament, the Old Testament, to the Old Testament, revelation back and forth. And it's really great. And, and sometimes these little phrases are there just to link these passages subtly to another passage further on that it's important for us to remember that this story actually means something something else in the Bible. Um, so just, just to mention the wine here. So the groom would pay for the wedding in the ancient Jewish culture. And... It's a, it's a week-long party uh, with loads and loads of guests from the community and family. And um, somehow this guy had to work out how much wine to order because they would have had to pre-order the wine. They would have gone to um, the local vineyards and they would have said, you know, wine would have come in vats and it probably wouldn't have been stored as well as it would in those days. They didn't have glass bottles with, with corks. So they would have had to order it for that event. Um, and he would have said, I want, you know, however many, gallons of, of wine and he had to work out how much wine he needed for the number of people for the number of days and that, that would have been a challenge. Um, uh, they didn't have Tesco's or co-op down the road so he when he runs out of wine he couldn't say, dad, quick, run to Tesco's, get some wine, get some wine. Um, so you know that would have been pretty tricky to, um, to, 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 to judge this uh, right and running out of wine is a really, really significant um, thing. Um, it really would have brought shame on the family because running out of wine would have been the end of the wedding. That week-long wedding would have been cut short to four, maybe five days, who knows. Um, and it would have been a talk at the a town. They didn't have Twitter and Facebook in those days, but all anybody would have talked about at the synagogue, at the market, at the Sea of Galilee was, did you hear about whoever's wedding. They ran out of wine on day four, and the wedding was cut short. And the, it would have been so much shame that there's, there's even thought that the groom maybe could have been sued by the bride's family because of the shame that it brought to the family. So to run out of wine is is a massively significant disaster for, for this wedding. So Mary found out that they're coming to the end of the wine, or that they'd run out of wine at that stage. So she came to Jesus, um, and You know, what did she come to Jesus, you know? What did she expect him to do? Well, Mary at this stage no doubt knew who Jesus was. Um, The rest of the world didn't know yet fully who Jesus was. She knew who he was, she knew what he could do. And also it's worth bearing in mind that at this stage, um, Joseph had, had passed away, um, there's the very little mention of, of, of Joseph in the, in the Bible at this stage, so she probably became to rely on Jesus as the kind of head of the household for solving, solving um, problems problems at home. So Mary finds out they've run out of wine, she goes to Jesus, and then there's this slightly odd conversation between them, which kind of sounds a bit rude, a bit, you know, doesn't, doesn't make sense what's, what's going on here, you know, because Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, those of many of you know my wife, Dinah, if I said to Dinah when she asked me to do something, woman, what's this got to do with me? I don't know what would happen. I'd probably get a slap. I probably wouldn't be spoken to for maybe a month, maybe more. Um, But anyway, it wouldn't be be worth finding out. So this looks like a rude comment to us, and in in English it is. this is something that um, is really interesting. in The Bible sometimes the English language really is has its limitations on what we can say in English, and sometimes if something seems a bit odd in the Bible, we have to go back to the Greek and work out what actually what actually is being being said here. So when we go back to the Greek and the words that are used, we find that actually he is speaking to her in a way of respect, and the word "woman," the Greek word that's used for that, is a bit more like "milady" or mom. You know, it's maybe a bit more the way we would speak to. the the queen, maybe. So he is saying that in a polite, respectful way, um, rather than how we first read it. But we then got asked the question, why did he seem to shun her? And Why did he almost refuse to do anything about it? Um, And we don't really know, but I think something to bear in mind is that we're at the stage where Jesus has just been baptized. He he lived a relatively sedate life for thirty years up to this stage, and he's just started his three-year mission um, towards his death and resurrection. Um, we know it's three years because as we work through the Gospels, we can count three Passovers between the baptism and his and his death. So, he's just about to start this mission. He's just about to reveal to the world who he is, and. I suppose he's almost focused, you know, the human part of him is focused on that mission, on demonstrating who he was, on telling us what the kingdom of God looks like, and on teaching us the way to our salvation from sin and, of course, his death on the cross. And interestingly, elsewhere in John, when Jesus speaks about his hour, because he says, "'My hour has not yet come,' in that context, he is specifically speaking about his time coming on the cross. And you can almost imagine him contemplating it and pushing his mother's back because he doesn't feel ready as a human to just start taking that step into his ministry. Once he performs this miracle and people start to learn who who he is, that's him starting his ministry. It's announced to the world who he is. And it's starting to get real for him and it's almost a reminder that God, as Jesus, is also human and he also feels the same worries and the fears and the, and the concerns that, that, that we, we fear. And we know that he was in anguish as his time came towards having to take the step towards, towards his death. So once this miracle was publicly experienced, you can imagine it was spread like wildfire people would be saying, there's this guy who seems to be in control of creation. And people will will chat and, you know, he won't be able to hide. And um, the focus is the wedding. You know, he wants the focus to be the wedding. This is not about him at this stage. But he still allowed the miracle to happen. You know, we then ask ourselves why. Um, And you can imagine, you know, it's it's not shared in the gospel, but during this conversation, was there a look? You know the look that you get from your wife when you've done something you shouldn't do uh, in public or um, from your mother you know, w- 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 when you're younger, the look you get that only the two of you know that communication between them. Was there a look? I don't know. Um, Did he feel compassion for the groom? Did he know what would happen if the groom, um, if they ran out of wine? Um, Or did he maybe do it but agree to keep it quiet? You know, just, you know, Mary, we know the servants knew about it. We know the five disciples knew about it. But all we know is that she ignored his comment and she just went straight to the servants and said, just do as he says, do as he says. So we're then told that Jesus spotted six stone jars and Armin's got a picture to show us of, of six. These, these are kind of jars that be that would be used. Um, and um, notice that John tells us that these stars are used for the Jewish rites of purification. So Jewish readers would have probably known what these are. But this is evidence that this gospel is for a wider audience than than just for Jews. And it's good to remind us that um, this good news, the gospel is for all of us. It's for everybody. It's not just for um, the Jews. So he told them to, to, to fill them. So let's talk about these jars. What are they for? So we're told that they're used for the Jewish rites of purification. So what that means is they're used for spiritual cleansing that was acquired before coming in the presence of God. And the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, Includes a list, a guidance, rules, lists of what God's people had to do to be able to be in his presence. They demonstrated what sin is and how we are by our very nature unclean, impure and not worthy to be in his presence or have relationship with him. Spiritual cleansing with water from a spring, which was called living water, was one of the many things that had to be performed in certain situations to be allowed access to enter the temple temple and to be closer to god and this is what these jars would have been used for an interesting historical fact is that previously jews had used pottery to store the living water but leviticus teaches us that stone could not become impure. So ultimately, the best jar to store water in is a stone jar. And up until the Roman time, they didn't have the technology to do that, but the Romans introduced that technology, allowing the Jews to to make stone jars, which um, we read about here. So hold the thought that these jars were designed to hold living water that was used to spiritually cleanse the Jews. And today, we've had a great picture, topical picture, as we celebrate the baptism of joy. Um, we have a great picture here in this passage of cleansing water, which flex, reflects forwards to the cross, and it helps us consider how Jesus has cleansed us of our sin in his death. And when joy was submerged in water and brought back up, that represented that she was publicly acknowledging that Jesus has cleansed her sin and has chosen to live a new life with him as a savior. So notice in the passage that Jesus said, to fill them to the brim. And that's something you can easily skip over, but it's really interesting and important um, for for a couple of reasons. Number one, something that's full to the brim cannot be added to. So um, it cements the fact that Jesus performed the miracle because if there was space, somebody could have said, well, somebody added something to it. Um, But it was full, no doubt Jesus performed the miracle, and it's, it's also a sign of completeness but also being full to the brim is a reflection on Jesus' character. He only does things in full. He only loves us 100%. He only died for us 100%. He only takes our burdens, our worries, and our sin 100%, and he therefore only saves us 100%. Now, it's worth having a wee think about how these servants filled these jars because it was a big task. You know, the passage just says they filled the jars full stop. Um, But they didn't have a tap in ancient Jewish times. They would have had to go to the center of the town where there was a... um, uh, there would have been a well. They would have had to lower down to the well, bring the water up and fill up these jars. This was a lot of water. So there was these six jars. John tells us they're 20 to 30 gallons, and that's because they're in various sizes. You can see here, there's a few different sizes. So they would have averaged 20 to 30 gallons. Now, I've worked that out as 440 to 600 liters. And if you look at the tea urns at the back, that's 100 to 150 of those tea urns. So that's a lot of water. So, and it's a ton of water, So it would have taken a lot of work to to move this water. As an aside, as we think about these servants serving Jesus and doing what he's asked them and getting all this water from the well back into the home to fill fill the jars up, are we loyal followers like these servants were? Do we do his will and step out of our comfort zone maybe to follow him and serve him? Just a question to, to leave you with. So at some stage, Before the jars were presented to the master of the feast, and the master of the feast is almost like the head caterer. At some stage, we don't know when, it turned from water to wine. So just imagine how these servants felt. They were asked by Jesus to move all this water around. It's a huge task, and all this time they're wondering, who is this guy? You know, what what is he expecting to do? You know, they've run out of of wine, and he's asking us to fill these with water. What, you know, are we going to serve water? What's going to happen here? And they must have been absolutely amazed when the master of the feast drank it and proclaimed that it was wine. And he was so impressed um, that he turned to the groom and he he said to the groom, you've saved the best wine till last. Um, So just to explain that, at these weddings, generally, um, as as the, the, the wedding lasted a whole week, they were started with the best wine, and then they would have ended with the poorer wine. And um, it's also important to note that in the UK, when we, uh, often in culture, when we drink alcohol, it's kind of overindulgence. Um, whereas here, it's more akin to how they approach wine in um, kind of Mediterranean areas. Um, it's, uh, it, w- w- the, the history tells us that the wine would have been watered down in these times, and it kind of would have been drunk slowly over a period of time. And it would have been um, an important part of the joy of the wedding and the, and the joy of the, of, of the celebration. But no doubt, even um, with a kind of slow um, drinking that they would have undertaken, towards the end of the week, they would have been in a situation or a feeling where they wouldn't have really been fully caring or aware what they're drinking. So when they drank the wine towards the end of the week, they wouldn't have cared so much that it was the poorer wine. But Jesus has turned everything upside down, just as he always does. And he supplied the best wine at the end. And you know, as I speak on it, it'll make more sense why um, John, John is telling us and why Jesus did this. So I think let's explain a little bit as to what's happening here in this story and what we are to learn from this story. So the first thing is that this is proof that Jesus is God. And it supports John's claim that we've looked at in previous weeks in chapter one, verse three, where John said, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Jesus was actually at the right hand of the Father God before he became a man on earth. He's been with God even before the creation of the earth, and he was involved in the creation of the earth with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And here, Jesus has demonstrated that he is still in control of creation. He was able to take water molecules and change their atomic makeup into wine. And who else can do that except God? So it's proof that Jesus is God. And this is really exciting, but this passage is also a hyperlink towards the Last Supper. And as we read the Last Supper, we remember this passage, and we remember that these jars containing living water for spiritual cleansing. And we remember the Torah's sole purpose, the rules, the laws, the guidelines, are to demonstrate that we are not worthy to be loved by, or in relationship, or to spend eternity with God because of our sins. No one could tick all the boxes. As soon as you cleanse spiritually, you fail again and you have to start all over again. And the Torah demonstrated the need for something more complete, something full to the brim like the jars were, something that finishes it all, something that acknowledges our failings but allows us to have a permanent clean slate. Jesus tells us later that he gives us living water. And that those who drink it, and notice this, he says, drink it, not wash with it, to take it inside us. Those who drink his living water will never thirst again. In other words, his living water will give us life forever, eternal life. And when we link this miracle to the Last Supper, where Jesus uses wine and bread as symbols for us to remember the act he will undertake on the cross and then link it again to his death on the cross, and then link it again to his resurrection, his raising back to sit on his heavenly throne, then link it forward again when we read in Revelation that one day we will drink new wine with Jesus himself, we realize that this passage is a metaphor for what is to come. His great mission he was contemplating when he said to Mary that his hour has not yet come. Isn't that beautiful? Everything links together perfectly. And that's what I love about the Bible that you, you see these beauties sometimes. Even on the cross, there is a wine hyperlink. So when Jesus drinks wine as he is passing, we're told that it is sour wine. And then he dies and he claims it is finished. His mission on earth is complete. So there's a really interesting contrast here. The best wine at the wedding feast versus this sour wine at the time of suffering for us in a magnitude that none of us can explain it's so great. This is another reminder of the future glory we will have with him. Revelation tells us that there will be a great wedding feast, the marriage of the lamb, and the lamb is Jesus, and that we, the church, will be his bride. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the wedding at Cana is also a hyperlink towards this ultimate feast, where we will share in the best wine with Jesus, full of joy, rather than sour wine Jesus drank on the cross. So what does John want us to take from reading the sign At the end of the passage in verse 11, John says, this was the first of the signs that Jesus performed. Manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So he tells us that this sign manifests his glory. It demonstrates his holiness. It demonstrates his splendor and his majesty. It demonstrates that he is God and that he created and that he can create. And it allows his disciples and us as the readers to believe this, to believe that this is a signpost pointing towards Jesus and supplying us with evidence of who he is. And again, in John chapter 20, 30, that I, I read out earlier, it's entitled the passage of this book, So what, uh, the purpose of this book. So what's the purpose of this book? John tells us the purpose of the book is that now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written. And the purpose is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name. So this sign not only told us who he was, who he is, but it also reflected forward to the cross. Jesus' act of suffering for us, his act of giving us living water from which we will never thirst, of cleansing us of our sin, well and truly, no longer fully bound by the rules of the Torah. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus tells us that he did not come to abolish the Torah. He did not come to abolish those rules, um, the rules and guidelines that nobody can fully follow. He came to fulfill it, So just as the act of turning water to wine did, the Torah points us to Jesus, the need for us to acknowledge that we are failures, that we are sinners, that we can never reach the standard needed to be in eternal relationship with God, that it's only through him, believing in him, repenting of our sins, that we can declare, just as he did on the cross, that it is finished. And for those of us who choose to live in this freedom, he invites us to follow him here on earth. He wants to share in the joy with him. Of course, there will be ups and downs, but Jesus takes our burdens. He walks beside us, he carries them for us in love. And in this, we can see his glory today. Just as the disciples did at the wedding feast, We are also promised that as believers. But he also invites us to something even greater that is coming, that we will one day share in the final eternal feast with him. Revelation tells us, blessed are those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So ask yourself this today. Are you invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Will you be at the table at the great heavenly feast and share in the best wine that Jesus has prepared for us? Do you choose to follow Jesus? If you haven't yet and you would like to know more, just as Martin and Scott both said, if you like to know what it's like to follow him, to share in the best wine that he's prepared for us, to cleanse us of our sin, to live a life with Jesus by your side, to be invited to the great heavenly feast, please speak to myself, Martin, Scott, or anybody else after the service. This is just something I just want to leave you with, just to consider this week? John has filled this gospel with these great signposts pointing towards Jesus. But have you considered the fact that we are signposts pointing towards Christ? Are we directing people to Jesus? Are we following his lead and demonstrating his love to those around us on a day day basis. It's definitely something worth praying over and something worth considering. Can we do more to introduce people to Jesus in our lives? So let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for this really rich passage. There's so much truth in this passage, Lord. Thank you. um, That There's so many passages in the Bible that when we take a deep dive into we can just find so many truths, and there's so many passages in the Bible that we think we know so well and we look at them again, and there's just more things to reveal to us through the Holy Spirit, Lord, that every passage um, has new stuff in there, Lord. and just thank you for the truth that you've taught us today, Lord. Thank you for your death on the cross. thank you for your salvation of our sins. Thank you for the joy of a life with you by our sides, Lord. And thank you for the promise that one day there will be a time of no pain and no suffering and the great wedding feast of the Lamb, Lord, that we will be with you and we will enjoy this great, joyous wine with you, Lord. In Jesus' name.